Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It's probably a story that many of you are familiar with. I'm going to read it anyways. I found a unique translation that has a, seems to have a different ending. Verse 38 to 42. As they continued their travel. Now, this is Luke chapter 10. A couple of weeks ago, we heard a message from the earlier portion of Luke chapter 10, sending the disciples out to minister in ways that blew their minds. Well, as they continue to travel, Jesus entered a village and a woman by the name of Martha welcomed him and his disciples and made them feel quite at home. Martha had a sister named Mary and Mary sat before the master, hanging on every word he said. But Martha was pulled away by many, many things that she had to do in the kitchen. And later, she stepped in, interrupting the conversation. Master, don't you care that my sister has abandoned me to slave away in the kitchen all by myself? Tell her to lend me a hand. And Jesus, being filled with compassion, filled with the Spirit, got up himself and said, Martha, I will help you in the kitchen. Isn't that a beautiful story? Isn't, isn't that what we would expect from Jesus? So full of compassion, so full of wisdom and the Spirit. Isn't that what we would expect from a truly Spirit-filled person in that situation? I, I know that most good Christians that I know, that's what they would do. And in their minds, they would be thinking, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, of course he'd get up and help. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't offer to help Martha. Jesus doesn't send anyone else into the kitchen to help Martha. Now, some of you, a lot of people are are missing, but a lot of you are here. And the people that are missing are probably either somewhere getting ready for a big Thanksgiving meal. And those of you who are here are probably getting ready for a big Thanksgiving meal. That's an assumption, but I'm going to go with it. And those of you who will be slaving away in the kitchen, can you kind of feel Martha's angst and frustration? I mean, there isn't just, you know, four people. There's probably 20, 30, maybe more people that she is preparing a meal for. She's doing it all by herself. Is that fair? No. And the Christian response, at least this is the way I went to seminary and we've been trained, you know, servant leadership. If something's unfair, do what you can to make it fair. Is her complaint legitimate? I think it is. I don't know about you, but it seems legitimate. Is her need real? I mean, I've tried to cook just for my family of three other people, and I need help. (laughs) Trying to cook for 20, 30 people. Does she need help in the kitchen? Is it a real need? I think it is. She has no microwave. Back to the local whole food movement. She's immersed in it, right? Unfair, legitimate complaint, real need. And Jesus responds by rebuking her. Wow. Interesting. 
Martha, you're off track. In the message translation, Jesus says this. Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing far too much and getting yourself worked up over nothing. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine? That's courage. I mean, this is the woman who is making food for the group, including Jesus. I mean, one thing I... I've worked in kitchens before at restaurants. You don't, you don't anger the people preparing your food. Anyone who's worked in that industry knows that. This is unbelievable. If you really put yourself in this situation, think of it in a big Thanksgiving meal and just try and picture this. Everyone's having a good time, socializing, having a great conversation, and the person who's slaving away to make everyone the meal comes out and says, I need help. And Jesus, the guest of honor, says, you're fussing about nothing. Nothing. That's an interesting word. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about illusion. What you are concerned about, what you're angry about, what you're frustrated about, what you're getting worked up about is an illusion. It's nothing. It's not real. Jesus had incredible insight into the inner beings of people, right? Jesus recognized when people were operating out of ego and false self and pain body. Now, I've talked about those terms many times, and I'll I'll refer to them again. I don't have time to get into defining what those are. In essence, if I had to lump them all together and give a very incomplete but concise definition of what I mean by pain, body, false self, and ego is this. Whenever you are in a state of being where you value or desire anything more than God, connection with God, and spiritual growth, you are in a state of ego, false self, or pain, body, etc. Martha's in a state of ego, pain, body. She's triggered, right? Have you ever been triggered? When you are triggered, you are in an, a world of illusion. I don't know what the statistic is. I don't even know if it's true, but it's always cited as, as to give an example of the, the futility of worrying. 95% of the things that we worry about never come to pass, right? Because when we worry, we're, we're dealing with illusions. We're fussing about nothing. When I get triggered, I am in an illusory world. I am not in tune with God. I am not in tune with truth. Sometimes when I am driving and someone is driving slow in front of me, I lose my mind. And I mean that intentionally. I start having these crazy thoughts. And when I become aware of them, I'm like, you're a madman. (laughs) Like this person is intentionally driving slow because they know I need to get to... What? (laughs) It's illusion. Or this person should not have a license. They should not... They shouldn't be allowed to drive going the speed limit. Right? We have these in, insane thoughts. We, we're triggered and we enter into a world of illusion. We're not in tune with truth. We're not in tune with God. And it's amazing how much of our lives are spent in the illusions. Martha's reacting to an illusion. 
She's in a state of ego, maybe pain body. She's triggered. Jesus, read through the Gospels, and Jesus is a bit of a mystery because you never know, why did he engage that person and totally kind of talk to the hand to this person, right? Like we always talk about Jesus, so compassionate, loving, but when you read through it, like, whoa, that was, what was that? Why is Jesus so compassionate to some people and then others just doesn't engage, sometimes even mean, calling them swear words? I mean, they're not swear words for us now, but whitewashed tombs. Try, try throwing that around. <laughs> Brood of vipers. I mean, these are scandalous terms. They're degrading terms. They're, they seem to be hurtful. What is going on with Jesus? Jesus never engages egos. Jesus never engages pain bodies. Jesus never engages false selves. Never responds to the demands and the complaints and the needs of egos and false selves and pain bodies. Never. Why? Because it doesn't help. When we respond to the complaints and the needs and the demands of egos and pain bodies and triggered states where we are immersed in illusion, all we do is reinforce that person's illusion and bondage. That's all we do. Jesus refuses to do it. Refuses. Jesus always penetrates through to the true self. And when the wall is impenetrable, Jesus does not engage. I don't know any pastors or any Christian leaders who have the courage to love people the way Jesus loved people. I don't know any minister or deacon or elder or Christian who would respond to Martha in that situation and rebuke her. Do you? Why is that? Why would we respond to the need and demand of her ego, pain, body, false self? Because it puts us in a state of ego, pain, body, false self. Why do we think that's unfair? That's our ego perspective. That's our pain body perspective, our false self perspective. You see, when we value God, connection with God, and spiritual growth above all else, and people do something that hurts us, say something rude to us, when you're in a state of harmony and attunement with the living Spirit of God, your first thought is, oh, there's weird stuff going on in me. What do you, how am I going to grow through this? The ego's first thought is, how dare they? Who do they think they're talking to? Or a whole list of things. You're, pro- you're all looking at me like, what's he talking about? Yeah, right. <laughs> but it isn't fair. It isn't fair that Martha has to... First of all, I say this to my kids all the time. Wherever you got the notion that life would be fair, you, you, that's an illusion. <laughs> it's not fair that you get to wake up every morning and go to school without being shot at, for instance. That's not fair. You don't complain about that very often. It's not fair that you know, many of you have pensions or will have pensions when the majority of human beings on earth don't even know what that is. Not a lot of complaining about that. We're very choosy about what, we, what fairness we tend to zone in on, right? Life isn't fair, never will be fair. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. Accept that. 
But this particular situation, if something's unfair and we can do something about it, shouldn't we try to remedy that? Here's what I've learned from Jesus. Jesus never corrects or changes an unfair, difficult, or painful situation if that painful, difficult, or unfair situation is best utilized as a tool or opportunity for transformation. I'm going to repeat it again because I know it was a long sentence and it's an important one. Jesus never changes an unfair situation, difficult, painful situation if that painful, difficult, unfair situation is best utilized as a tool or opportunity for transformation. See, Jesus, Jesus didn't, the ego, whatever. Jesus tended to the needs of the soul, the permanent needs of that human being. Martha wanted help in the kitchen. What Martha needed was to learn something much, much deeper and transformative. Jesus isn't thinking, what's going to make her afternoon more pleasant? Jesus is thinking, what does she need? So that in 20 years, she doesn't die of cardiac arrest because she's stressed out all the time. What does she need so that she hasn't driven everyone in her life away from She has no meaningful relationships because she keeps acting this way. Jesus is thinking long-term What does Martha need to live a whole, meaningful, joy-filled life? And often that means not changing the unfair, difficult, painful situations. They are tools. They're opportunities. Think of it as instant gratification versus delayed gratification. Instant gratification. Need help now. Long-term gratification. Okay, there's all sorts of stuff going on in my internal being, Martha. You're losing your connection with God. Something's going on. What does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't stop there. Oh, Martha, you're getting worked up about nothing. You're living in the world of illusion in your ego state, your pain body state, your triggered state. Jesus says, continues, only one thing is essential in life. Only one thing is essential in life. My friends, if that doesn't bring focus to your spiritual life, I don't know what will. Jesus isn't saying, now there's 17 things that you're... One thing is essential. And he continues. And Mary has chosen it. When she comes out, she's frustrated, but her anger is focused on one person in particular. And it's Mary. Jesus not only rebukes her, but he seems to rub salt in the wounds of her ego. You're trying to shame Mary? All right. Do you want to play that game? Okay. Well, Mary's actually chosen the one thing that is most essential in life, and you haven't, Martha. I can't wait till I'm so full of the Spirit I have the courage to love people the way Jesus loved people. (laughs) You know why we don't? It's because we don't want people to love us the same way. But you know what? There's a growing desire in my being to actually have a few people, I don't need all of you, but a few people to love me the way Jesus loves me and to start pointing things out. My wife, as we, as our love becomes more real, you know when you're in love? (laughs) Whatever, you know. 
as you really start to love one another, my wife is becoming more and more bold and assertive. And when I'm acting like a child, she now names it. And that will continue, because that's love, because she has the courage to actually love me. When we first got married, she's quite enamored with me. I mean, who wouldn't be? (laughs) And then when I acted like this, all of a sudden, we all have these moments, and if we don't, I guess I'm being vulnerable, but we have these moments where all of a sudden, wow, my husband is seven years old. (laughs) This is really odd. But she didn't really mention it, right? She's just sort of like, okay. I'm going to go journal now. (laughs) Reflect on life decisions. Uh, But she wouldn't call me on it. it, But as we grow in love, we become more courageous. Because we we realize, hey, we're we're building a life together. We're raising a family. I mean, she speaks into my life more boldly. And I think that happens in in community too. Anyway, I'm on a tangent here. We need to do communion. Only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course, and it won't be taken from her. It's the main course. Martha's working away at preparing a meal, and Jesus says, Mary stumbled upon nourishment and food that you don't get, Martha. And before I get there, what is this one thing that's necessary? The one thing that's essential in life. What has Mary discovered that Martha needs to? In one word, presence. Presence. In order to enter into intimate and interactive communion, those who watched MTV in the 90s, I just had a flashback, intimate and interactive In order to enter into intimate and interactive communion with the living Spirit of God, we need to first be present ourselves. Present in the moment. Now. Some philosophers call this moment the eternal now. It's the only moment that stands outside of time, that transcends time. Now can't be measured with, with time. Oh, in about an hour and 15 minutes, we're going to have now. Well, yes. <laughs> Same as right now. And it, now is, is, is actually a portal into e- the eternal, into the heavenly realm. Right now. It's the only moment. You can't be like, okay, I'm planning on really engaging with Christ yesterday at 3 p.m., right? Or tomorrow at... Now is the only moment, it's the only portal we have to eternity. And when we access, and it's freely given to everyone in equal amounts, we all have an opportunity to enter into this portal of the eternal now, and there the living God is waiting to commune with us, intimately and interactively. In order to enter into that portal, we need to be present in the eternal now moment. Fully present. Mind, body, heart, soul. Christ is present in Martha's home. Martha is not present with the presence. You with me? Mary 
is on her knees in front of Jesus, hanging on every word he says, completely immersed in now, right here, right now. And Jesus says she has discovered the main course. She has discovered nourishment and food. That's an interesting statement. Jesus talks about this quite often. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the nourishment you need. Remember when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, the disciples come up and say, hey, you haven't eaten in a long time. You must be hungry. And Jesus is like, I have food and nourishment you don't know about yet. Think about this. The true nourishment of our entire beings, body, mind, heart, soul, is interactive and intimate communion with the living God. I am I'm reading this book. And it's from a doctor, scientific medical perspective, emphasizing fasting, absolutely critical for a healthy life. And it, I'm reading a lot of books like this, and it's, it's actually, it, it's changing my life. It really is, in every way. Fasting. It's so interesting. You know, we need scientists to remind us to care for God's creation. We need scientists to remind us, hey, we should be fasting. It's interesting. that's, That's God. He'll get the message through. If the church isn't listening, other people will. And they'll remind us. Fasting. To discover the true need of your being. Communion with God. Now, do we, secondarily, do we need food and water once in a while? Yes, not near as much as we think. <laughs> Talk about illusions. Wow, God has been revealing illusions that I have with food that have been blowing my mind. I remember Shane and I were having a conversation, and I said, I can't live without potatoes. And I said it more emphatically than, I've, than I usually preach the gospel. <laughs> And Shane was hilarious. He's like, oh, well, I guess that does it then. There we go. Okay. It was a great response because I'm like, okay, something's weird. Something's weird. It's been six weeks. I haven't had potatoes. Hallelujah. It's a a miracle. It's a miracle. I mean, I can't remember going my whole life. I can't remember going a day without some form of potato. True nourishment Mind, body, heart. Mary's discovered it. And you only discover it through presence. The practice of presence. The church, most Christians, we operate in the paradigm of Martha. Distracted by the many, many things. Many good things. More, right? We need to do more in our community. We need more programs. We need to do more for peace and justice. We need more committees, more meetings. We need to be more relevant. We need to be more contemporary, more, more, more. (sighs) More is not the solution. More is the problem. Now, obviously, none of these things are bad things unto themselves, right? Doing more for the community, working more for peace. These are not bad, bad things unless they become the main thing. You've heard the saying, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, the main thing is presence. Not only the main thing, Jesus says it's the only necessary thing. It's the only essential thing in the kingdom of God. It's not just the main thing. It's the only thing. Presence. 
And when we let other things or many things become the main thing, remember we talked about that trajectory. We are deviating from God's best, God's ideal, and from connection with God. And the further we go down that path, the further and further we get, man, we can end up creating all manner of horror. Doing good things, though. Doing good things. All right, we're going to do communion. Communion. Before I do that, just to wrap up presence. What is it? Because, you know, lots of people talk about presence. What does it mean to be present as a Christian, as a follower of the way of Jesus? And it means simply doing what Mary did. Hanging on every word Christ says. Being fully present, fully in tune, hanging on every thought, every word, every prompting, every nudging that comes from the living, present Christ in our midst. Communion. Why do we have this interesting ritual called the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist, many names for it. I'm going to call it the Lord's Table. It's not to remember something Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That's really important. It's to remember that Christ is present right here, right now. That's why we do it. Jesus, the Christ, is still called Emmanuel. God with us. Christ isn't... God was with us. God with us right here, right now. The last thing Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, I am with you always even until the end of the world. Now, reading the news lately, I would not blame you if you were starting to think we are approaching the end of the world. But as far as I can see, we have not reached the end of the world. Which means Christ is with us. Always. 24-7. The point of this practice is to be present with the presence. Not like Martha, busy about... Oh, what time, and i got to get doing that. No, to be merry, present with the presence. Here's where the Catholics got it right, and I think Protestants got it wrong. Transubstantiation. Interesting idea. I think extremely flawed, but here's what I like about it. They take the real presence of Christ seriously. Now they say the, 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 the cracker turns into the actual body of Jesus. I don't subscribe to that. What I like is the philosophy, the principle that Christ is actually present with us. And us Protestants, in rejecting the mode, have often, well, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. So we just make it this memorial service. Wasn't Jesus awesome? He was such a great guy. I wish he were here. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's celebrate what he did for us. He's such a great guy. He's here. The first, and I'll close with this. My, my sons are always like, do you promise? They need that promise, right? I promise. I'll close with this. The first, the first Lord's Supper, Eucharist, communion service to happen after the resurrection. When was it? Road to Emmaus. A couple of disciples are traveling to Emmaus. It's about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And this stranger accompanies them and they start talking and this stranger is awesome. I love those moments when you meet a stranger and they happen to be awesome. And they open up your mind. This stranger is opening up their mind to Scripture in ways they couldn't even conceive of. They love him so much that when they get to Emmaus, they're like, hey, have supper with us. He's like, okay. They sit down 
And this stranger takes over. And he breaks the bread and blesses. And as soon as he does it, their eyes are open and they realize Christ is with us. That's the point of communion. That's the point of partaking in the Lord's Supper. Coming to the Lord's table, realizing Christ is with us. He's the host. We're the guests. That's my prayer for us this morning. That we are like those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Our eyes are opened and we see He's with us.